You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Carol, great to have you back, my friend. I'm in Grand Cayman today, and whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Lugano, Switzerland, and uh, looking out at the mountain. It's a sunny day, cool, and uh, they say that Switzerland's the best place to be during COVID right now. It's the number one safest place in the world. Good for you. So listen, today I wanted to have a kind of different conversation because normally we go broad and today we're going to go a bit deeper. I want to talk to you about goals because you have been one of the leading thinkers and proponents of the value of gold in this current world. I'd, what I'd love to do is go back a bit and go through your journey of understanding goals and then we'll go a little bit into why it matters so much now. And then we'll talk about some of the opportunities that you've, you've been kind of pounding the table and very rightly about over the last few years. So I want to go back. And how did you get into gold? How did you understand it? What's your framework here? Well, I was bearish on gold in the 80s and 90s. I was on the right side in the late 70s blow off. And then I wrote this book with Gary Schilling, uh, Is Inflation Ending? Are You Ready? So I foresaw a long period of disinflation and high real interest rates. In the post-war period, real interest rates in the United States were very, very negative. So high real interest rates was not going to be good for gold. And then we had the emerging Asian crisis in the 96 to 99 period. And commodities went down, but then they started bottoming. And then we had 9-11, and you would have thought they would have hit a new low. And of course, it was obvious you were going to have a U.S. recession and headed to a global recession. Commodity prices were actually going up. So I changed my long-term bearish view on gold and recommended it in an article called Buy Gold Before Central Banks Deflate. This was March of 2001, and gold was 266. And I've been bullish essentially ever since. Now, we had a what some people would call a mid-cycle correction between 2011 and 2015. We had that same correction between 1974 and 1976, although the people who went through it didn't feel it was a mid-cycle correction. It was a full-fledged bear market. And in December of 2015, I wrote this article which was called, Will the Last Be First? Obviously from the Bible. And gold shares had been probably the worst asset to own between 2011 and 2015. And that was the bottom. December 3rd, gold bottomed at 1,045, I believe. December 3rd, 2015. And it's been the best performing asset class in the world. And gold miners have been just phenomenal. I think they're up 200% since that period. And uh, the S&P is up 67%. This year, the 13D, we have our own 13D gold miners index. It's up 51% versus 7.8% for the S&P. 
So that's sort of the background. I mean, gold is not to be always bought and always owned, but we're in a period where the end game that I've been foreseeing for a long time is coming to fruition. And Ludwig van Mises explained it very well. He said there are only two ways to end a credit-fueled boom. One is you withdraw the credit. The Fed tried that with QT, but there wasn't the stomach or the tenacity to hold. And he said the other is the full-fledged and utter debasement of the currency. So we have the combination of highest debt levels in history, America's debt to GDP this year, by the end of the year, certainly will be its highest in history, exceeding that of World War II. Of course, it's going to get worse and worse. These deficits aren't going to go away. And there's no other way to deal with the problem other than inflating it away. The world certainly isn't going to embrace or allow a, a debt deflation. And we certainly aren't going to grow our way out of it with this debt burden, COVID hanging on our necks, and also the horrible demographics, which we have this decade, which is the worst, certainly in 500 years, when the adult working population in the developed world is retiring between 8 and 12%. So you just got a horrible demographic picture, a horrible transfer of payment picture, massive burden of debt. And as Lacey Hunt has articulated so well, the more debt you add, the less productive the debt is, and the less productive the debt is, the money velocity then isn't stable and it declines. So it just feeds on itself that the productivity of more borrowing and the productivity of more monetary easing is getting less and less effective. So I was interested to see that the Bank of England and the uh, Reserve Bank of New Zealand were considering negative interest rates. <laughs> there certainly has been a long and detailed history of how it worked. It didn't work in Japan, it didn't work in Europe, and of course, negative interest rates is horrible for the banks. So will it happen in the US? I don't know. It certainly seems possible. And the banks will have to be protected. There are a lot of difficult nuances to do with it. But in any event, uh, we're in a period where the end game is in sight. And people don't own enough gold. And the supply demand, it's always, everything is supply and demand in the end. So the supply is going up at best 2%, at best. And the environmental restrictions are tough. The miners are using capital discipline, so they're not going to have these crazy exploration projects. And what they're going to do is they're going to buy the junior miners. They're going to buy reserves in the ground. So we've created this portfolio of acquisition candidates to buy. But the profits of the gold miners are literally going to be just phenomenal. The all-in cost of production is roughly $1,000 an ounce. And here you are at $1,900. And it's very important to remember that when gold peaked in 1979, remember it went from 300 to 875 in about three months. And then the same thing happened in 2011. Uh, it went up to 1911, big move. 
but it didn't stay there. And I think this time around, wherever the ultimate high is, gold is going to stay there. So the profits of these miners is just going to be phenomenal. Cash flow machines, and they're going to be paying out dividends. So in a world of no yield, where S&P has discounted just about everything good that's out there and nothing that's bad, the coal miners look awfully attractive to me. So that's sort of a quick summary. So let's, before we get into gold miners, I want to talk a little bit about the, the current situation. So there are deflationary pressures, yet there's inflationary pressures. People can't get their heads around that there's two different right. things going on. Talk us a bit about that, because all the central banks are printing. But yeah, there's, there's a deflationary wave going on because of what's going on. How do you think about that? Because people get very confused and think, well, gold won't perform in this environment. And I don't think you see it that way, and I don't see it that way. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. No, it's a very, very good question, and one that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Now, as a friend of mine who runs the longest existing gold fund, and he came to me in the mid-90s in my apartment to argue that gold was good in deflation. And I said, well, look at the Japanese yen. So the Japanese yen had gone up. And actually, at that time, uh, in yen terms, gold was selling for $100 uh, an ounce. So in a period of deflation, by that I mean negative CPI, unless you have steeper negative real rates, it's not going to be good for gold. Um, But we're not going to find ourselves in that situation. Now, there's been some conversation recently that real rates were rising, although you know, if you study the situation, the global economy cannot sustain more than a minute a rise in real rates. And you could argue in March that a good portion of what happened was a rise in, in real rates. So it can't be allowed to happen by the authorities. So the deflationary pressures are very strong, as you pointed out. We have the demographics I spoke about. We have technology. We have the burden of debt, which is anti-growth. And then on the other hand, you have the power of the printing press to debauch the currency. And somewhere out there, people will lose confidence in paper money. The dollar and gold are a pretty good inverse correlation. I mean, the dollar can go up and gold can go up. But if the dollar goes down, then then gold's going to go up. And dollars, the reserve currency, And the U.S. is the largest debtor ever in history, adding massively the trade deficit that Trump predicted would go down has actually increased with China. So there are very few reasons to look at the U.S. the way people have in the last 10 years. Separation of powers, institutional structure, 
that's the only place you could really invest in technology, highest economic growth in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So the problems that America has is, is now overwhelming those positives. So I think the dollar is going to have a big tumble. And maybe it'll happen after the election, maybe it'll happen before the election. And that will start off this concern over the, the value of paper money. But on the other hand, we have to be wary, and Stan Miller has made this point very well. If you want to create a deflation, cause an asset bubble, and then pierce it. So we have to watch that as well. But my, my thoughts on that are that even if we get a deflationary pulse, let's say the asset bubble bursts, the only answer from the central banks is more. So gold in a deflationary environment will start pricing in future central bank action. So it's a very different dynamic, I think, this setup, because with rates at zero, yes, they could go negative, and I think they probably do. But either way, that's good for gold, even in deflation, because the central banks can only do more. It's the only option they've got. That's exactly right. That was my argument in my 2001 memo, buy gold before central banks reflate. So what we're doing is here, we're just anticipating what their actions are going to be. And it's going to be the worse things get, the more they're going to have to do. And there's so few people who own enough gold. Talk to me about that a little bit. When you talk to your clients, I know, you know, you'll have a slightly biased subset because they understand your your philosophy on gold, so many of them will own gold. But talk to me about some of the pushbacks that some of these have. And also talk to me a bit about the value of gold in a world where bond yields are zero. Because maybe in portfolios, gold is the new bonds. That's a thesis. So yeah, talk to me a bit about your clients and the pushbacks you might get and, and how you see it. Well, let me back into it in the following way. So one of my theories is that extremes in one direction end up going in another direction. Highest interest rates in capitalism, lowest interest rates. So we had, remember when we had no volatility and then all of a sudden we had massive volatility. So we've had, oh, so much money, so much free money. And so I'm, I'm preparing for a world where money is going to be hard to come by. Real money. And more importantly, a cash flow. And this was one of the things that got me first interested in the, in the miners three, four or five years ago was I figured if the gold price goes up, interest rates are zero or negative and stocks have risen so that their yields are, are low and you worry about dividends being maintained in a difficult economic environment. What are you left with? So you're looking for cash flow, and the cash flow is going to come from these mining companies. So with all in costs at $1,000 an ounce, what kind of money do they make at 10000 gold? I mean, it would just be unbelievable. So Pierre Lassan pointed out that when he took Franco Nevada public in 2007, what you, you the stock you bought at that price is yielding about 7% now. So as to the rest of the question, 
The pushback is, I think, maybe we have a very enlightened client base, but I really don't get any pushback. It's really just a question of how much do they have? Do they have enough? I would say a year or two ago, it was just, you know, it wasn't even an asset class. Um, you know, it isn't worthy of my consideration, but I don't get that anymore. People understand it. And one by one, we have Buffett changing his mind after 50 years. Lee Cooperman all of a sudden has bought. Sam Zell's bought gold. Uh, you know, some, some really, really intelligent people with a great track record are, are seeing that this is an asset they want to have. So I think that the only question is how much do you own? And World Gold Council recommends 10 to 15%. I personally think that's, that's low. I would recommend higher, but it's your own comfort level. And so do you think that there is merit to the idea that gold could replace bonds in a 60-40 style portfolio? Maybe not 40%, but 25% gold, et cetera, yes. instead of bonds. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. <laughs> you know, if it were me... It wouldn't be 60-40. It would be something a lot higher uh, <laughs> on, on, on the gold side. I just keep finding uh, new opportunities in the, in the gold mining space. Let's talk about gold miners. So you've talked a bit about the cash flows. Talk to me through your whole thesis here. And then, you know, and then I want you to dig in a little bit to Franco Nevada where you've really you know, you've been a very major proponent of what Pierre is doing there. You've obviously bought Pierre and Real Vision in the past as well. So talk me through the whole minor thesis. Well, I love the royalty model. So Franco uh, Nevada has a market cap of, say, $25 billion, and they have 28 employees. That's one employee per billion dollars market cap. I mean, yeah, I almost, almost don't have to go beyond that point. And... Pierre loves to talk about the optionality. And that is that you buy gold acreage because that's where gold has been found. It makes sense if you're going to try to find gold, you're going to try to find it next to a gold mine. But that acreage is being valued at what is known today, not what might be known five or 10 years from now. And Pierre talks about how his very first royalty, I think he bought for $2 million and it, it flowed a billion dollars of cash flow. That's a great model. And you don't have to take the risk on the expiration side. You're just getting uh, a, a, an interest. And you, a lot of what they get is actually getting the physical gold. And the way Pierre has done it and his colleagues is that you, you sell high and, and buy low. So when gold was uh, flat on its back in 2000, 2014, 2015, that's when Pierre was doing a lot of deals. And the $2 billion that he that he raised at the high, he invested at the low. That's, that's my kind of guy, right? It sounds simple. It's never that simple. <laughs> so that's a, that's a great model. There are not a lot of royalty companies in the gold space, they're going to be more because people understand what a great model it is. Pierre calls it the best business model ever invented. I happen to agree with it. So I, I think that they're really 
the, the other way of, of investing in this space is, for me, I, I've got most of my gold shares are in the premier quality mines, the barracks, the new mines, the uh, AEMs. We have six in our, in our 13 gold miners index. And then you have some exploration companies where they've got fantastic acreage. Uh, Orla Mining is an example. It's got a 10 million ounce discovery in Mexico. And it just so happens to be uh, right near where another 10 million ounce discovery was made. <laughs> and they have, if I remember correctly, 287,000 acres of land that they can explore on. And what do you think the odds are they might find another big discovery? So that's the optionality. So I play around with what should be the proper allocation. It just so happens at this moment that I'm 50% in bullion to 25%, say, in, in uh, Franco and 25% in gold miners. You know, that, that's a pretty high ratio for the bullion. But, you know, I've, I've owned it for a long time. I bought more. I'm certainly not going to sell any of it, you know, so that just happens to be what I have at, at this moment. So as more money comes in, I'm not buying any more gold. I'm just buying more gold miners. And uh, we just put out this index, which is about um, the companies that are going to be acquired. Because as I mentioned, the majors, their production is peaking. They don't want to have very expensive, dangerous projects in parts of the world that, you know, unstable. So they're going to be very much driven towards acquiring gold in the ground or in the stock market. So we have a list of about 11 that we think will be good acquisition candidates. And are they US, are they US Canada based or are they globally? Well, I think ideally you want to be US in North America. Uh, you're going to have to take some risks if, if you want to get some exciting projects. And that's why you want to have a diversified uh, acquisition portfolio. That's why we have. What are the, some of the names you're looking at in that space? The one I can talk about is Orla Mining. And uh, if, you, if you look at who owns it, um, it's, uh, if I remember correctly, Pierre owns 12%, Newmont owns 25%. Another big, big major owns, owns an equal amount. And then you take the management and it's up at 60% closely held. And they raised all the capital that, that they need and they'll start entering uh, production next year. So um, that's, that's one that I think is, is really interesting. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So you think consolidation is going to be the big theme as, as so many of these junior miners sitting on provable reserves and the majors just have to take them out because of the profitability of the entire sector? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good thing because we want these miners to maintain their capital discipline. 
That's what always happens at the end of the cycle. They go crazy. And of course they will. But let them be slow in doing it and let them return a lot of their free cash flow to shareholders uh, in the meantime. Yeah, I, I just see it as a free cash flow machine. Now, clearly gold is a strategic asset and countries may decide that they don't want to have the gold mined by foreign companies. I think that that's a risk for some of these some of these assets, which is why you want to be largely in, in North America and a diversified portfolio. But I think that'll be slow to manifest itself. I, I don't think that's something we have to worry about in the next next couple of years. But it's something as always, you watch these little little signs that are warning, saying, be careful. And what about the central banks themselves and their holdings of gold? How do you see that developing over time? Well, if you look at what's on your balance sheet, you would think that you would want to diversify a little bit. You've got equities, such as the Swiss National Bank has, and Bank of Japan has. Then you've got these these bonds that are at 5,000-year lows, and these countries are all more expensive. Only 5,000-year lows. <laughs> Only 5,000-year lows. So, so here we are, got these assets in the trillions that can only go down in value. It can't go up anymore in value. And you think you would want to have a hard asset on the balance sheet. And central banks have been buying. And I know that the World Gold Council has told us that pretty much every central bank in the world has inquired about how they can buy gold without disrupting the market. Wow. So there's, you know, Russia, Russia buys for many years and then it stops for a quarter or two. But uh, I also have been told by people who apparently know that China has been importing a lot more gold than it publicly sells. It might be something in the order of 2,000 tons a year for many years. So they could very, very well be the largest owner of gold. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a gold-backed cryptocurrency coming out, which would have a lot of appeal. And on this note, it's worth mentioning, you and I, when we talked in March, I explained how my good friend had told me about to buy Bitcoin in 2012, and I was too lazy or too busy to do it. And then when it finally peaked, I guess it was December 2018, at 20,000 plus, he told me he was selling. Uh, you know, he bought it for like 200. And then when it bottomed again uh, a year later, it was 4,000, 5,000. said, said uh, you know, I think it's bottoming. Anyway, long story short, so I finally, I finally in Bitcoin, uh, late to the party. But if it's as big as I think it will be, it's, the party hasn't even begun. So what the ratio is between Bitcoin and gold that you, you hold is another important question to ask. And the way I look at it is that central banks own gold, but they don't own Bitcoin. So they are incentivized to support gold, but not incentivized to support Bitcoin. 
but China may be a different story. Anyway, so it's a very interesting time. I'll tell you what is interesting, Carol, is also I'm looking, and you'll have observed it as well, is Europe and everybody else is moving towards a central bank digital currency. And I think you and I have even talked about this. What's becoming evidently clear in the world where monetary policy doesn't work any longer, the mechanism doesn't work, you know, velocity of money's gone to zero and the banks are sitting on reserves, is there's this little stealth thing, which is the central bank digital currency, the central bank saying, oh, we just want to be modern in the digital world. But what the reality is, is then the central bank owns the entire transfer mechanism of money. So it can give you direct fiscal stimulus without a government. And for me, you know, if I think of another bullish case for gold or, or Bitcoin in this, when you give the central banks the power to run fiscal policy essentially, directly, and to therefore directly monetize, I mean, that is the end game, right? That is true money printing. Yeah. And when you look at the bills that are coming due, especially with the demographics being what they are, it's monstrous amounts of money that are going to be required. So what do you think Warren Buffett suddenly discovered? What was his light bulb moment? Because you must have looked at that with a smile on your face and thought, well, it took you a bit of time to get there. What, what is it? Is it just about the, the beauty of this free cash flow and their great businesses? Or do you think he has a macro view embedded within this? Well, of course, he has a team who, who make investments but given his longstanding anathema for gold, he had to be involved in that decision because he knew it would attract an awful lot of attention. And I think it's, I think it's a, a free cash flow story, but it also could be other things. He's always been on the inflation camp. I shouldn't say always, but for many years, he's warned about inflation and I think he was born in 1930, and between 1930 and whatever the date was, he was talking about the dollar lost 98% of its purchasing power. So he's, he's always thinking about that. And I think that's, uh, that was also a part of the consideration, I would guess. But what it did do was to give the seal of approval by one of the world's greatest investors that gold is okay to own. I mean, and that's that's interesting because there's a group of people who understand the value proposition of gold bullion. So some of the you know asset allocators will have gold bullion. But I kind of think, and, and I'm sure you can confirm this, that when Warren Buffett starts buying these gold businesses and say, well, these are really good, well-run, free cash flow businesses in a debt-laden world, these are very clean balance sheets. Have we started yet to really now see the asset allocators buy gold miners? Or is that still another phase? Do we need gold to go up another leg and then they start getting sucked into the gold mining stocks? What do you think about that? Well, these committees take, take some time to make big decisions, but you're already seeing some of these endowments are moving in. One of my clients manages a, a university endowment. Of course, he's let gold for quite a few number of years. So I, th I see there's more activity there. But I think we haven't even begun the big sector allocation. And just imagine what happens. As we've seen, whatever the Chinese get into, it's the price just goes berserk. I'm a little out of date on this, but uh, my good friend Charles Lee just resigned as head of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, told me a couple of years ago that this 
there's just 20 trillion sitting in, uh, in Chinese banks. And there's a trillion of just very, very hot, smart money that is just moving around, trading things. At one point, I, I talked to ICBC Bank, and this is even five years ago. They said that already then they had 200 million customers who could buy gold directly from them. So the, the mechanism is there for the Chinese people to come in and buy it en masse. There's a time when you reach that critical moment and you can feel that it's starting to enter a different stage, has a different feel to it. You know, it's not a bull market that's climbing a wall of worry and there's not all this skepticism and there's not all these corrections that shake you out. Of course, we'll have those, but there'll be more of, okay, I get it. Time for me to get in. And that's always a very interesting time when it starts to become an accepted thesis, but everybody's underweight because there's, as you say, less volatility, less corrections. You know, even the correction we've had over the last few months, it's been pretty benign. It's been a you know pretty sideways move, bit choppy, gave nobody any real pressure. And, and that makes it very interesting because it kind of feels that the next lev, leg gets more explosive because people have less fear. It's very different than when you started buying gold or adding to your gold miners, you know, a year, two, three, four years ago. That's different. There's more, that was the more the texture of the wall of fear. Now you've got the kind of the wall of hope coming. People, for some reason, have had this prejudice against gold and of course, as, as you so well know, FDR confiscated America's gold. And maybe it goes back to that, that America was never really interested in gold like the Chinese and Indians and French and Germans are because they've been through periods when their entire currency has been wiped out. Not that that hasn't happened in America, but for some reason, it just never became part of the DNA of of America, but it is for other countries. And it's been around for 5,000 years and paper money always gets debased. As Will Durant says, history is inflationary. Of course it is. The governments always promise more than they can deliver. This has been going on since time began. So that brings, that brings us talking of governments. We've got this election right in the middle right in the in front of all of this how does this work within this what are your what's your thinking around that is it irrelevant to the to the gold story is there an accelerant here you know does it ease up the the ability to do more fiscal how are you thinking of the election within your framework well i'm nonpartisan in my comments to the clients and uh i've studied elections from my whole career when they're very important and i've been good at all the ones that mattered and it all seemed so easy to me at the time 2016 was so easy to see there hadn't been a real wage increase for american workers for 30 years and he was the guy who said there'll be no one left behind so i felt two and a half years ago that, that trump was going to get defeated and it was very simple reasoning by 2020 we were going to have had the longest expansion in american history the odds of something going wrong were extremely high. Not that I foresaw COVID. And then summer of 2019, we started to focus on 
global tourism as being a very weak and vulnerable link. 10% of global GDP employs 330 million people. Little did we know what would happen, but it was just a weak link. And that's how you can see things, is to look at where the stresses may occur. So here we are in an election that's going to be at least this date that we're having this interview, and we decided on the management of COVID. And I think if you are 100,000 feet above, you would say that this administration did not do a good job of managing COVID. And I think there's going to be very high odds of a democratic sweep. And with a democratic sweep, that means a lot of fiscal stimulus will take place. And that's going to be very good for gold. Do you think it would come through in one wave? I'm kind of building an idea that we probably, whoever gets in, and let's assume it's the Democrats, because that's how the polling is going right now. Let's, let's say they try and do a $2 trillion, $3 trillion fiscal. I don't think it's going to be enough. And I, I kind of think there is a new green deal, uh, you know, a new deal to come and that it's going to be much bigger, whether it's a five or whatever, invent random number and double it sort of stimulus to try and fix some of this stuff. I, I feel like that is in the pipe. It would happen if the economy doesn't really recover yet. So let's say COVID sticks around until the summer or so. What do you think about that? The, the kind of really big kind of new green deal idea that the Democrats have been floating? Well, who was the senator who said uh, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you get some real money? Now we're talking about trillions. And that wasn't all that long ago. It was like 20 years ago. So what seems uh, a year ago uh, was a trillion. Today, we've done, done, what, four or five trillion? All right, we've done four or five trillion. So what's, you know, let's get into double-digit trillions. And you get shocked. Less and less, <laughs> it gets more, more unbelievable. Clearly, where we're going to end up, in my opinion, is the Fed will be given the power to spend, meaning that the Fed will actually pay directly. Think about how easy that is. Yeah, and with, the, with these central bank digital currencies, it becomes even easier. Because then they can, they can give it directly to people. They can say, Kirill, you deserve a million dollars. Press the button, Kirill gets a million dollars. And th- that is the end game. And that's Lacey Hunt's kind of end game is when the central bank directly monetizes with nobody, nobody in the middle, no transmission mechanism. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, of course, we have the whole supply chain issue. The reshoring by local, all those movements are going to be uh, inflationary of some kind. We have to wait and see what happens with the election, obviously, but how the, the, the new government plans to, to allocate the nation's resources. This is a point that, you know, I was born a, a libertarian. I always thought that less government is, is best, but I changed my mind about four or five years ago. And I think that a government needs to be able to allocate some of the nation's resources. So if you start off with, with Adam Smith's invisible hand, which is the essence of capitalism, that everybody pursuing their own personal interests, this is great. But what was left out 
is who's going to worry about the national interest? Who will build the high-speed rail? Who will put in the new interstate system? Who will repair the bridges that are falling down? And who put in the new, the new ports? Who will invest in, in 5G? Who will be COVID uh, prepared, right? So the, the private sector isn't going to do this and can't do it. So you have to have the public sector working with the private sector. And the idea is that the public sector will invest in technologies that the private sector wouldn't do because it sees no commercial interest when it started. But after it's been developed, then the private sector can commercialize it. So I think this is an important shift that needs to happen. But in any event, somehow the nation is going to have to decide how to allocate its resources. And stock buybacks to the tune of seven trillion does not seem to me that that was a good way to allocate national resources. And we should get back to massive R&D by by companies and education of the workforce and restoring education. Teachers should be uh, revered as the highest members of, of society as they are in Finland, for example. So a lot of, somebody has to make these national priorities, the priorities which the private sector cannot do and has not done, has failed at it. Let's flip across the pond to Europe, where you are right now. So part of the equation is what Europe is going to do in this situation. And because again, part of the thesis of gold is not just the US dollar itself, but the overall debasement of all fiat. How are you thinking through the Europe situation and how that plays out into the next year or so? Well, actually, I'm happy to be here in Europe. I think it's an interesting time to be in Europe. If you believe that the environment is a critical factor going forward for our world, not everybody does. I happen to be. We started a series in 2002 on extreme weather events. And you you lose track of how many there have been, but this has been a a signal for for almost 20 years that this is taking place. And I think that Europe is way ahead on trying to get a carbon neutral world. And I think that that's very appealing to a lot of people. Regulation here is much tighter on antitrust which I think is necessary. The big platforms have too much power and they've used that power. And for all the talk about the Euro falling apart, it hasn't yet. And my argument has been all these years that the two world wars were so traumatic. So just an incredible number of people killed, it was a hundred million or something. This is not gonna be forgotten for generations. And it's a glue that keeps Europe together. And even Salvini, to the extent that he was kind uh, of having an influence and he's fallen off the radar screen, uh, wasn't talking about leaving the euro, you know, to get the Italian lira back. So they managed to hold together. And if this 750 billion fiscal plan is ever approved, which I think it will be, I think it will be would be good. 
getting Brexit finally done, however it happens, will be one less thing for Europe to worry about. So they can focus maybe on what needs to be done. And do you think the ECB will have to end up doing more than this than this mutualised offering that they've got? I mean, you know, what kind of magnitude more kind of printing or stimulus are the Europeans going to have to undertake? Because obviously they've got problems with the banking system and there's a number of issues out there. Well, it's a very interesting story. So uh, David Hume was one of the leading lights of the Enlightenment. And Einstein actually credited him with helping him develop his theory of relativity. And he wrote a paper in 1765 or something like that, arguing that governments should always run a fiscal surplus because there always would be some event. And this, of course, is what the Germans did. And I was certainly at the forefront of criticizing them for for doing this at a time when the rest of Europe was uh, suffering. But now they look pretty, pretty smart and they have the money to spend to to do what needs to be done. And that's a big advantage. I know I'm switching gears, but not really. What's interesting is how little China has done in terms of the PBOC and fiscal. So there's some, some countries that have done massively like the US. Europe has done less, but what it did do, it could afford because of, the, of their fiscal situation and Germany's fiscal strength. So it's too early to make a judgment, but I think that may be a very important distinction that we're gonna see going forward. Who handled COVID badly? Who ran up the the debts? Who had massive monetary stimulus and then who didn't have to do it? Fascinating, yeah, I think that makes sense. So to wrap up and frame all of this is, I wanna look into the future now and talk about, okay, you've been very early in the gold move, very right, very vocal. You've done huge amounts of analysis on the whole space, the miners. You know, you've even brought people to Real Vision very early on, Pierre Lasson, to say, listen, you need to understand what's going on here. It's amazing. So how long is this gold cycle going to play? As you said, these things are cyclical and it ends when the miners end up doing too much and whatever that is and however long that is. I'd love to know both time and price. For the, for the miners, you know, how much more upside? I mean, you've already been up 200% or so in that space, but what kind of upside for others is there in gold itself and over what time horizon? Now, I, obviously, you don't have a crystal ball, so I'm not asking, you know, just in what, what you might, you're thinking in your head. What we've seen time and time again in the last 20 or 30 years is that these cycles are lasting longer and going higher than we could ever have imagined. I mean, who would have imagined that they had the big tech platforms doing this year what they had done beyond my possibility to imagine? And uh, so I think the pattern is that it's going to go farther and last longer than anyone thinks possible. And I remember it was 1982 and David Boston, the late David Boston, my good friend, uh, Dow was, uh, was just taking off. It was uh, 8.25. He said, it's going to 3,000 by uh, 1987. We all kind of said, yeah, yeah, David, sure. <laughs> and uh, so given the dynamics that we're in a, a global economy 
And everybody can buy gold now. There isn't anybody who can't. You have ETFs, there's all different kinds of vehicles you can use. That the potential is just huge. And what has been useful in the past in terms of sentiment, at least in the US equity market, has not been helpful. But what, what has been useful is these parabolic blow-offs, an unsustainable rate of advance. And that's basically how I you know, predict tops is, is something that's either going down at an unsustainable rate or is going up at an unsustainable rate. So if you look at Amazon at one point, it was up 80% this year. So you annualize that. I mean, obviously that, that just, that's not sustainable. So you know you're getting to the end. But I think this point about gold, wherever it's going to go, staying there and not having a spike, people will, will say this time, oh, well, look at what happened in 79. It, uh, it went up to 875. It was there for, I think, the average for the quarter. I, I don't really know, but it was 600 maybe for a quarter. And then it was, it was back down to 2,400. But this time, I think it's going to go up there and stay there. So that means that the gold mining companies are just going to be money machines. Wow, yeah. They may be taxed. They may have higher rate of taxes. Pierre-Lasson says we're in the third or fourth inning. I think that sounds pretty good to me. And by the way, uh, Michael Osterholm, who I rely on very heavily on pandemics, says we're third or fourth inning in COVID. Fascinating. So the final question is, so you personally, you buy and hold bullion and store it in a vault, or do you have paper gold? How do you think about that differentiation? Because, you know, that's something people need to understand a little bit, and you understand that well. Well, I have the physical bullion. And one of the reasons to own gold is because it's outside of the financial system. Now, we saw what happened in 2008. We saw what happened in, in March. The systemic risks of algos and all the other new products has not really been tested in a financial crisis. So the odds of something becoming very ugly at some point is very high. So that's how I like to have money out of the banking system. There are other reasons too because there's going to be a search for wealth around the world. And with FATCA and all the other things, the governments know where the wealth is. But I think that it's important to have the physical bullion. Now, some people may choose not to do that, and I would take the ETF uh, over not having any gold. But if you can, you can have the physical bullion, I would have that. I also was with this guy who was with Edmund Rothschild. He ran their investment business. And he told me that during the war, Second World War, after the war, the gold coins sold at a 40 or 50% premium. And so I'd never bought the gold coins up to that point because it's a three or 4% surplus premium. So I went out and bought a whole bunch of gold coins. I can't say I'm thrilled with owning them but I can understand the rationale. 
Kirill, fascinating as ever. And, you know, congratulations on a great call so far. But I think, as you say, it's early in this game. And I think, you know, I think people will get their heads around owning gold, what it means in a portfolio, what it means for asset allocation. And as you say, the mining companies, this is incredibly interesting. You use the expression, you know, having a gold mine. And, you know, that 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 is how people think about wealth. It's, a, it's like a gold mine. Well, these guys actually have gold mines. And in this business, when they've got clean balance sheets and generate huge cash in a rising bull market where they're not, not necessarily fully hedged, it's an extraordinary opportunity, I think. One last comment I'd make is, coming back to my friend David Boston. So he was given $5 million in 1982 by a very great value investor to, to invest. And it's a really sad story, but a very important story. It was very, very bullish for all the right reasons. And he lost the entire thing trying to short into corrections. And when I watch a lot of people in this gold space, they're, you know, they're, they're trading, they're in and out. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, this is a bull market. When you're in a bull market, you buy and hold. And if you're given another opportunity, as we have been down to the 1850s, buy some more. This is the mindset that has to change. And one of these days it will. This is a buy and hold. Remember how for years Wall Street kept saying, buy the dip, buy the dip, buy the dip. And so retail is now totally enamored of buy the dip. Whether that will turn out to be correct, remains to be seen, but in terms of gold, buy and hold. Perfect way to end, Carol. Thank you ever so much. Great to catch up with you again. And let's see what evolves over the next few months and years. I think it's going to be fascinating. Always a pleasure. When we spoke in the Adirondacks, I think it was July of 2019, gold was under 1,500. That's right. And you were bullish then. <laughs> You've been, yeah. It's been a great call, Carol. Well done. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.